Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. Within the life sciences space, tactics around launch are a critical determinant of a therapy's ultimate success in the market. Launching a new biopharmaceutical product or indication requires detailed planning and enormous coordination across scientific, commercial, medical, access, and delivery teams in the years leading up to approval. In our client work over the last decade, we have witnessed firsthand how launch strategy and operational execution have evolved to paramount importance. Today, Mindy and I are joined by Dynamics' Ashley Stanley and Brian Stamm to discuss what this evolution in product launch means for life sciences organizations and the healthcare industry at large. Ashley, I'd love if you could tell our listeners a little bit about how the launch landscape has changed in recent years. The main thing that we've seen in the launch landscape in recent years is just the sheer number of approvals and launches that are taking place, both globally and within the U.S., So from a global perspective, the number of launches have increased tremendously. In 2021, the number was double what it was five years ago. And from a U.S. perspective, we're seeing the FDA approvals increase as well. The types of products being approved has also evolved. So a lot more specialty products, rare disease, and products that are targeted for patient populations. With the number of approvals and launches happening, that certainly leads to a more competitive marketplace. And it's another big trend that we're seeing. So it's been really interesting to watch some of the new players come into this space, including unique acquisitions and partnerships that are really changing the market dynamic in the product launch space. Yeah, that's right, Ashley. As as you mentioned, the the competitive market is, is starting to become more and more crowded as clinical trial pipelines grow. In fact, between 2020 and 2021, there was roughly a 14% increase in the number of trials. And there's a few things that that have led to that more competitive marketplace. Just off the top of my mind, I think the two that stand out for me is one is the targeted therapies. So there's smaller patient populations with more complex unmet needs, where in the past, maybe a pharmaceutical company would not have made the effort, whether it's with resources or investment to go after that smaller patient population, but with more investment out there and and the opportunity to go after those smaller patient populations, that is something that we're seeing more and more of. And I think the other thing too is we're seeing co-promotes or alliance partnerships between pharma companies, both big and small. Again, whereas in the past, there wasn't always the ability to take that risk because oftentimes the investment was not worth it. Now we're seeing that that big pharma is investing in small pharma and starting to take the risk more in the co-promote to help share that risk. Building on that big pharma, small pharma lens, and one of the things I think we've personally seen a lot in working with clients is the shift in talent, especially from a small pharma perspective. There are a lot more biotechs commercializing on their own for the first time, and a lot of the way they're able to do that is because there's a lot more investment being made in some of these small pharma biotechs. And we've definitely seen venture capital firms investing more in these types of organizations. 
And I think they're able to attract top talent. So when we think about people who want to get into that fast paced environment of launching a product, they're moving around and they're, they're jumping to these different organizations, maybe these small farmer with a, a certain specialized talent that they have that they're able to bring to the table within that organization. And I think it's really advantageous for some of these small pharma companies who are commercializing for the first time on their own to be able to attract the types of resources they need to bring a product to market. We've also seen people jumping in between big pharma. So, you know, it's a big industry, but people really do kind of jump around and want to test the waters, whether it's in the launch space or working in different therapeutic areas. And I think that that's another big contribution to why it is such a competitive marketplace. And Ashley, you mentioned talent. And I think uh, a lot of what you spoke about was internal talent, but I think we also need to recognize that pharma companies are, are starting to tap more and more into third parties, so external vendors to help with some of those niche roles within the product launch lifecycle. So whether it's assessing a market landscape, performing patient or HCP segmentation, helping to develop positioning statements, we're seeing more and more that pharma companies are trying to outsource some of those roles that they particularly would have done in the past to ensure that they are making the most of their investment and ensuring that they are going to the, the experts when it makes sense with when they don't have those internal capabilities. This could not be more true than in the kind of small biopharma biotech landscape. So small organizations, often very nimble, often very budget conscious, and they're not bringing in big third parties to help them launch typically, right? Oftentimes, as I mentioned earlier, we're seeing the rise of biotech and these kind of first-time launchers, but that's what they rely on is these specialized vendors and third parties and hiring people in that can be really focused and be really nimble and and make sure that they're bringing the product to market as efficiently as possible. And we're seeing more and more of that and, and these small pharma companies relying on these outside vendors to, to provide specific services versus kind of one-stop shop. Ashley and Brian, such great points about just the trends that we're seeing in the marketplace as it relates to the sheer volume of launches and how that is contributing to this increased competitive marketplace whether that is due to the nature of co-promotion, the volume of R&D investment, these new players of small biotech getting more and more in the mix. Beyond just this marketplace competition, another headwind in the launch space is just the rising cost of drug development. We know that it is hugely expensive to bring these new drugs to market and ultimate success can be pretty low, even though we're seeing perhaps an increase in that success rate with more targeted therapies, biomarker screenings, et cetera. Success rate still hovers around 12%. And as we continue to get into more and more advanced therapies, these trials are costing more. And this increasing price pressure and the cost of the clinical trials are two other factors that make it a really tight marketplace right now when we're thinking about the product launch space. Another pressure that we're feeling is increased pressure from regulatory. The FDA is really evolving in recent years to bring innovative life-saving products to patients where there's an unmet need, and that's great. The accelerated approval process within the FDA has grown in recent years. So I think you know, in 2020, of all the NDAs and BLAs that were approved, about 14% received accelerated approval, and that number has doubled 
since 2019 and 2018. So we're seeing more accelerated approvals. And it's encouraging to know that the FDA is kind of investing in making sure that some of these specialty products, rare diseases, biologics are getting into the hands of patients where there really is an unmet need. We need to be careful, though, that it's not done at the cost of patient safety. So I think we can't mention accelerated approval without talking about Adjahelm, which, as we all know, was approved in June of 2021 after the FDA advisory panel voted 10 to 1 against approving the product. And what this really did was brought visibility on this overall accelerated approval process and certainly calling into question whether we need a tighter process, more rigor around those types of approvals and perhaps shorter allocation to, of time to conduct the post-approval trials that will get them converted to a full approval. It's a good point, Ashley, about all the different pathways that the FDA has created over the course of the last several years. I also think it's reflective, though, of an FDA that has a recognition that the science is evolving. And with that evolving science comes the need to have different types of pathways to approval But there is balance that needs to occur to ensure that trust in what the FDA is approving is well thought out. So you don't have, you know, another example like an Agilem come to the market. So I think there's two sides of that, that conversation about the regulatory pressure that teams are facing. And part of it is, you know, having choice in terms of how their products may go through the approval process. And the other is an understanding that, The FDA, while they're trying to stay on top of things and meet the needs of the industry, that there is a right way of doing things while going through those pathways. And the FDA will continue to have regulatory scrutiny, even though they are trying to work with industry, right, to give them ways in which bringing product to market in a safe and faster way is present. Also, anecdotally, beyond just maybe some of the increased scrutiny around the accelerated approval process. Within some of the launches we've worked on here at Dynamics, seeing some increase, right, in just the strength of evidence required in the normal pathways for approval, seeing perhaps a slight increase in those applications that are being marked with deficiencies and, you know, not making making their way through to the, the full approval and maybe as well seeing some delays with FDA pushing back on approval dates. There still is a lot to catch up on from the COVID crisis that has now been spanning multiple years. And as a result of that, you know, that we're still seeing some some missed PDUFA dates, some delays on the FDA side. Although as we are working through the various UFA approvals heading towards this fall, I'm sure there'll be some some quite stringent asks from the industry back to the FDA to make sure we're not seeing that trend continue in the future. To that point, I think looking at the draft that's circulating around Congress, the industry has had a say, at least in having a more balanced agreement on these user fee agreement renewals that will have to take place by September 30th. So there is recognition, obviously, on the industry side that PDUFA has to be two-sided, right? It can't just be beneficial to the FDA, that if the FDA doesn't live up to those requirements in the User Fee Act, that industry has to have some recourse so that it's, it's fair on both sides. And I think that's part of what's been taking a little bit longer than normal with these User Fee Acts, which is 
you know, there's some negotiation going on, but I do expect that the next one will give pharma some protection or greater protection than they've had before when PDUFA dates are missed. We have covered so much ground quickly when it comes to the trends that are really shaping the product launch marketplace. And I'm really struck by just the sheer volume of considerations that our clients have to contend with as they're working through these launches. I'm curious, Brian, when we take all of these pieces together, what does it really mean for our listeners when it comes to thinking about product launch? Based on everything we talked about today, there's a theme, whether it's the cost of drug development, competitive market, or new regulatory pressures. There's many different factors that are hitting pharma companies as they look to launch a product. And what that means is not every launch is the same. Each individual launch must be approached in a manner that works best for that. While a robust launch framework is key, a flexible framework is even more key. Smaller indications must be approached differently from your quote, blockbuster drug launches. Companies must ensure that they're not using a one size fits all approach because it's not something that will be repeatable. And it's not something that you can often adapt to fit a market that is ever evolving, whether it's governance, ways of working, launch planning, communication. These are all things that Dynamic is starting to work more and more with our clients to ensure that they're flexible and adaptable and we can pivot. Because as we see, the market changes, accelerated approvals are becoming more popular. And it's important that as a result, you plan, plan, and then plan some more for every possible scenario. Oftentimes, we're now seeing clients that their PDUFA dates are being pushed up months because of accelerated approval, or we're seeing market events that were not planned for appropriately and are now starting to cause increased pressure on a launch team. So it's very important that a launch team takes the time well in advance to plan through all possible scenarios and ensure that their launch planning framework adapts for everything that could possibly occur between high-level readout and market approval. We can't underscore the importance enough of starting early when doing the launch planning. And, and quite frankly, we're seeing our clients reach out to us earlier in the game. They're no longer looking at T minus 18 and pulling us into launch plan. We're looking two, three years out from launch. And what that enables the teams to do is initiate some of those activities that are going to be really important for them to understand the market that they're going to be launching into. And you're doing that a couple of years out from launch. I don't want to suggest that three years out, you have to have a full launch team in place. That's certainly not the case, but there are some activities that need to be initiated early that give the team a better understanding of what are we going to be launching into? What are some of those opportunities and risks that we need to be aware of that we're going to then need to plan for? It also helps them better understand what are those other key activities that are going to be happening two years out, 18 months out from launch, right? So whether it's thinking through the activities themselves the resources that they're going to need to actually initiate these activities and and follow through ahead of a full launch team being stood up and what budget they need to account for as well. I think these are all such important factors that our clients are coming to us more frequently now to say, hey, let's start earlier on and let's really think through what this is going to need to look like two, three years out from launch so we can then plan accordingly. To build on that, one of the reasons that we're seeing this, and I think this goes back to the flexibility framework that I just discussed, the robust nature of pipelines now 
means that these pharma companies don't just have a single drug or a single indication that they're launching into the market with. Now you're seeing multiple indications within the same therapy area from a company based on the smaller patient populations or alliance launches. And it, it means that they have to do that planning because they don't have the liberty anymore to focus solely on that one launch. They might have 10 different launches going on across their company at one point in time. So they have to ensure that they've thought through everything, like you said. And in those instances too, we're seeing some of our clients set up centers of excellence because they know they have a huge pipeline coming down the pike and they want to make sure they do have resources in place that can help manage that sheer launch volume that they know is going to be coming. And I think tied to all this is being thoughtful around budget and how clients are making those investments. So some might not be thinking about the investment that needs to be made on an asset that's not launching for three years, but you really do need to think that through. Tied to that is also the big resourcing question, as I mentioned earlier. I think this is one of the biggest things our clients are asking us is, who do I bring in? When do I bring them in? And I want to make sure that I'm being thoughtful with my investment. The last thing you want to do is be bringing in either a a whole function or a sales team and have them sitting around for any number of months before receiving FDA approval. One of the big themes we've talked throughout here is the ability to be flexible and really need to be thoughtful about where they're placing those investments, when they're bringing in those resources. And I think that starting early in this structured yet flexible framework is really going to set them up for success. And I think going back to what you said earlier about starting early, that's why it's so important that we as Vynamic work with our clients to understand all the different deliverables that go into a launch well in advance so that they can appropriately plan for investment, whether it's dollars or resources. Yeah, and I think that brings up another point, which is within that structured yet flexible approach, the team dynamics and how you start to, and I think Brian, you might've mentioned this, but the whole idea of like the ways that we work, right? And with the intention of building trust and establishing clear roles and responsibilities as the launch begins to progress. And the one thing I've seen is, especially when you think about all the different functions that are critical to launch success is aligning those functions in integrated fashion, right? On what success is actually going to look like and how you create accountability so that everybody is moving in the same direction, in the same pace, so that by the time you really get to those, those critical moments where you're, you're ready right, for, for launch, that this integrated approach across functional responsibility has already been established and that the trust is there amongst one another as a team to understand and communicate clearly about what needs to happen at each phase of this launch to ensure that when FDA approves it, they can hit the ground running. That's entirely true. And one of the things we continue to do throughout the launch planning process is pointing back to that agreed strategy. We recognize that launch is fast paced and especially as you're nearing FDA approval, you know, activities are happening quite quickly. And As long as everyone is focused on that same strategy and looking to meet those launch objectives, you'll ensure that all the activities are working towards that. The last thing you're going to want is a function working on something that that doesn't complement or isn't part of the broader strategy. So that's something throughout the whole launch process. We continually remind our clients of coming back to the strategy. What are the objectives with this launch and how are we ensuring that all the activities that we're doing as a cross-functional team are driving towards that vision? 
Ashley, that brings up a good point in terms of transparency and accountability. Everything that underpins that is communication. Communication is key when working across a launch team. You need to ensure that everybody, no matter the role they play, whether they're a core launch team member or a supporting launch team member, understands, again, like you said, what success looks like, understand how timelines will occur, and it is agreed upon what people are doing. I think some of the more successful launch plans right now or launch teams that we're seeing are those that take the time to plan cross-functionally. So whereas in the past, maybe medical had the sole responsibility to drive a deliverable and didn't always have others involved in that conversation. Now what we're seeing is teams coming together earlier and talking through their plans together so that you have that transparency and people are able to play off one another. Again, maybe it's a, it's a deliverable that marketing owns, but there's things that an access team can do or a medical team can do or a training team can do to help ensure success for that deliverable. And it's very important that you have those open lines of communication and you have those opportunities for that knowledge sharing. Great points, Brian. And I think the importance of that communication can't be underscored enough. I think if you ask any leader or launch lead on a team, they'll be like, of course, communication is so important. But based on some of the complexities we talked about earlier, that's sometimes easier said than done. We were talking about co-promotes, right? So oftentimes now these launch teams are spanning multiple organizations with different organizational cultures, different processes, different systems. So it can be a lot just to keep these two teams potentially on the same track, working towards one common objective. And then with the trends we're also seeing in talent being much more mobile across the industry, perhaps going from you know, larger pharma to small biotech and vice versa, more than ever, these teams are working together for the very first time for a particular launch. And even though they may have done a launch before, they might not have done it with this particular organization or this specific team. And they'll have to navigate some of those inter-team dynamics, those interpersonal dynamics in order to ultimately be successful, even if everyone can really play back and plan cross-functionally. There's a really human element too to being able to make these launches successful. And I think this is where culture plays a big role as well. So you're so right. There is a human element to all of this. And we've seen some of the great success stories with clients that we've worked with where they've really been conscious about the culture that they're creating across their launch team. So oftentimes leaders who ensure that their team members are communicating and they build trust and there's awareness and visibility into the activities that everybody is doing. And there's that cross-functional partnership. That's where we've seen a lot of these great successes. And again, high pressured situation and there's a lot of activities, especially moving quickly as you near launch, but ensuring you have that strong cultural element and you have those teams really collaborating and working together towards that common goal is ultimately where we see some of the greatest successes. So well said. Thank you so much, Ashley and Brian, for lending your expertise to talk us through this really exciting time within product launch. And for our listeners who are interested in learning more, please check out the What We Do section of Vynamic.com to find out a little bit about our product launch service offering. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, 
and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.